Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to the first episode of the Engineers Collective for 2021. The first of many this year that will bring you insights into major developments in the world of civil engineering, as well as keeping you up to date with the latest news in our monthly news review. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer, and today we're going to be exploring the world of systems engineering with a look at what it is, the benefits it could bring to civil engineering projects, and what the challenges are for moving towards this approach. Calls for a systems approach to be adopted by the industry were put into the spotlight at the end of last year when the Institution of Civil Engineers published its Systems Approach to Infrastructure Delivery Report, which provides guiding principles and recommendations for the leadership, culture and organisation of infrastructure projects. Among the recommendations is a call for infrastructure to close the gap with sectors that have adapted better to growing complexity and technological change, including oil, gas and aerospace. The report recommends cherry-picking best practices to improve efficiency and effectiveness in civil engineering. I'm joined by two guests today to look at the report in more depth and discuss how a systems approach is already being applied by the sector. Both Bentley Systems Senior Director of Progressive Assurance Systems, Chris Wallison, and Amy Principal Engineering Manager and Head of Systems Engineering for the Wales and Borders Programme, Matt Gibson, have extensive experience in the area of systems engineering. Chris was the founder of ComplyServe, the UK innovator of ComplyPro, which pioneered the concepts of progressive assurance for major infrastructure projects and was acquired by Bentley in 2016. His early background was in electronic engineering and over the past 30 years he's been involved in taking forward several leading edge technologies to market. However, he became aware of the need for improved project assurance solutions in the transport infrastructure industry in the 1990s when his team was heavily involved in delivery of engineering technology and services to a number of rail infrastructure programmes across Europe. Chris and his team have developed a strategy to better integrate systems engineering practices within project delivery and supply chain management, which is being used around the world on projects including Crossrail and the Doha Metro. Matt started his career in the defence industry, specialising in logistics and reliability, availability and maintainability of land vehicle systems before transitioning to the rail industry. Before joining Amy, he held a series of technical, operational and project management roles focused on developing, managing and delivering a systems engineering and assurance capability, working both in the UK and internationally. Matt is currently seconded as the Technical Interface Manager to the Wales and Borders Core Value Nines Transformation Capital Works Programme and is responsible for delivering systems integration on the programme, including integration with the new rolling stock fleets that are being procured and overall development and assurance of the project requirements. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the Engineers Collective. Can you start by telling me how you would define a systems approach to our listeners who might have never heard the term before? Hi, Claire. Good to meet you. Um, I'll have a crack at starting with this. Um, you know, systems approach to the delivery of engineering projects has evolved over many decades uh, and can be traced back to the United States, I think, in the early 1940s. Matt might agree with me there. 
Yeah, very much so. Yeah, when the term citizens engineering was first established. So, so in this discussion, when we're talking about a systems approach, we'll probably be mainly referencing systems engineering and its associated disciplines in the context of infrastructure. Systems thinking, I think this is sort of quite well defined, actually, in the ICE report itself, as embracing the idea that the whole is more important than the sum of its parts. In the simplest terms, it means understanding how all the component parts of a project work together to meet a common objective. As projects become more complex, it also helps stakeholders and project leaders understand how individual assets will contribute to the performance of the wider networks in which they sit. Systems engineering is an interdisciplinary team process aimed at creating successful systems and outcomes. It uh, starts by defining customer needs and functionality before going on to create holistic design. It considers both the business and the technical needs of the stakeholder with the ultimate goal of providing a quality product that meets the user needs. Uh, from my experience, one of the key challenges for infrastructure and civil engineering in particular, and, and mentioned in the report, is that there can be a tendency for civils to focus on building edifices yeah, rather than considering the overall outcomes of a project. For example, you know, the, the, the iconic station, for example. And I remember once when I was due to travel on the Channel Tunnel with my family, and one of my kids thought, it was a road tunnel and that you just drove over to France uh, through the tunnel. You know, much emphasis had been made on the magnificent civil engineering feat of tunneling under the channel, um, which, by the way, it was. But at the end of the day, the tunnel is actually part of an international rail system, uh, a key outcome of which delivers significant economic benefit along its route. And incidentally, the railway drove European-wide railway standards for interoperability that ensures that trains can safely travel across Europe using common safety systems. I don't know if you want to add anything to, to that, Matt, in terms of your view on systems engineering. Yeah, Claire, nice, nice to meet you, and thanks for thanks for very much for having me as well. Um, it, yeah, Chris, no, no, I think I very very much agree with what you said there. I, th I think for me. The key thing for people to bear in mind is 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 when you boil this down, and, and it's it's perhaps a crude way of explaining it. But systems engineering or systems thinking is really just thinking or engineering a system, and and the important thing is is what do we mean by a system? Which Chris, as you said, is you know it's, it's a simply it's a it's a group of things organised to do something specific and and with an, with an intent, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and and that's really it. And 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 you can make your system whatever you want. Um, there's, there's, quite, there's quite a famous Dilbert cartoon that I think quite a lot of people have seen about the right requirements. And actually, if you sort of steal that example, a, a tree, some rope and a plank of wood are just three things. You put them together, though, and you've got a swing. And that's, that's kind of your system. And I think it's understanding what you're trying to achieve and managing the, sort of the risk associated with achieving that is, is really what we're talking about here. So when was it first applied to civil engineering projects, this approach? Well, you might be surprised, Claire, to know that a systems approach has been used on civil engineering projects for, for many years. Um, certainly since I've been involved in, uh, with systems engineering on, on infrastructure projects, and particularly where safety is a critical issue like transportation, rail, nuclear. 
And this is one consideration, actually, that, that doesn't really come out of the report for me. And I'm thinking of projects I've been involved in in the past, like the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, or High Speed One, as it's known, the West Coast Modernization Programme, and, and Crossrail, where we've been involved in that almost from the start for some 15 years. The challenge is that even where a systems engineering approach is is used in infrastructure, there's often a separation between the systems engineering functions and the civils design and delivery functions. Um, Systems engineering is often considered the domain of the systems aspect of the project and not often the civils aspects. And I think there are cultural issues that exist here. Systems engineering is often seen, I don't know whether you agree with me, Matt, but I think systems engineering is often seen as something of a black art, um, something of a necessary evil, and and is not well understood often by senior management um, in in civil engineering and the wider civil engineering community. I I remember a senior manager of a a large engineering company once said to me that he he saw systems engineering as a major disincentive because in preparing tenders for major projects, once he'd submitted it into the systems engineering team, it had added something like 50% to the overall cost of, of, the, of the bid. And, and I think there's a sort of general lack of understanding of the true value that systems engineering can bring uh, these projects. I think one other thing to say as well, which is, is, is probably a key theme here, and, and again, this doesn't really come out of the report, you know, as the architectural and the civil aspects of projects have successfully embraced BIM or building information modeling for those that aren't aware of BIM and the digital twin methods and technologies, they've largely remained separate from the engineering functions and and the systems thinking approach. In my view, I think this is one of the key issues that exists in the industry, the gap between systems engineering as it's applied on major civils projects and the digital engineering functions themselves. You know, BIM has been considered as, you know, the information hub on major civils engineering works and delivers significant values, uh, but it's not currently systems driven. I mean, there's a significant opportunity to better integrate systems thinking and engineering with BIM and the digital twin. And I'd go as far as to say that this is a missing link and and generally the poor integration between systems engineering and BIM is a major contributor to project impairment. A systems approach should embrace all aspects of a project and this will come out hopefully later in the conversation, you know, from the earliest concepts and should drive the approach to digital engineering itself. So what are the key benefits that projects can derive from taking a systems approach from the early stages? Well, there's, there's lots of benefits. And, and to me, one of the key benefits is, is really, as I, as I mentioned before, it's about, uh, and the report does allude to this, it's about understanding and managing the risk that's associated with, with your project. I think we're all very used to in, in projects talking about risk to program, risk to cost. However, program and cost impacts are almost always secondary impacts resulting from a risk arising on, on your overall system. Uh, and with having to achieve your overall system. So there's significant benefit to, to project, um, project outturn uh, can be derived from this. Um, there is research around this that, that sort of backs that up, which is, which is useful. Um, and it, it's been shown through research that 
somewhere in the order of magnitude of 15% of um, total program cost is, is where the optimum spend is on systems engineering effort. I think it's important to, to sort of caveat with, with that, with it needs to be useful systems engineering efforts. Um, not, not just a, a, an industrious office somewhere in a corner. Um, so it needs to be useful. And I think the other key point to me is that what that report, that, what that uh, figure doesn't say is you suddenly need to apply 15% onto the top of your program budget to do that. When you look in and around the project, there will be a significant amount of systems engineering, systems thinking being done already. You know, people, as simply sometimes as people asking themselves a question, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? Or, you know, you hear people say, let's look at the big picture for a second kind of thing. You know, that, that, that is fundamentally systems thinking. What we're really, or systems engineering, what we're talking about here is establishing a framework within the project to pull that together and to structure the overall project around that approach so that you take those pockets of knowledge and that pockets of thinking and put them together as an overall uh, project framework. So the key benefit to me is when done right, you should achieve a more reliable project outturn from, from the application of systems engineering. Um, it's, it's one of those difficult areas. You can never do a, um, a back-to-back study. You can't, you can't run a, a dummy project to see how it would have gone without. But there's a lot of evidence out there that, support, that supports that that's the case. I mean, Chris, I don't know if, from your experience, you've got other things to add there. No, absolutely. I, 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 I totally agree with what you're saying there. And I think, I think it's in COSI, the International Council of Systems Engineering, who themselves say that the you know, successful implementation of systems engineering can reduce overall project costs by between 10 and 20%. For me, the experience I've had over the years, there are two key uh, impairments that exist on major projects. One of them is the lack of oversight of what's happening on a project and the fact that often the projects are dependent on project and program management reporting to determine where they are on a project. Unfortunately, that can often be over-optimistic. And the application of systems engineering gives a more granular view of um, what's really happening on a project. It gives you a better overview and oversight of, of, of where a project really is and the true health of a project. And if you get that right, that can lead to significant advantages in terms of reduced lead times, reduced design times. There's a whole list of things I could come up with in terms of improved reliability, reduced introduction costs, reduced warranty costs, etc., that come from having a better um, overview of, of where the project is. And the other area which is often poorly managed is the management of requirements on projects. The elicitation initially, I don't know whether you agree with this, Matt, but certainly um, my experience has been, even on even with projects that are being delivered by organisations with extensive systems engineering background, often you'll find that requirements at the, at the establishment of a project can uh, come from different sources. You have, you know, system requirements, you have obligations, you have stakeholder requirements, and often these come from different sources and are managed within different processes. And at the start of a project, that's not such a major problem. But as a project progresses, these requirements can diverge. 
And that's where a lot of issues come into play on projects generally. Ideally, you want to be managing requirements within a sort of single environment and that the you know, obligations, um, uh, stakeholder obligations, et cetera, are linked to the actual project uh, requirements themselves. So for me, one of the big things about systems engineering is giving projects this holistic view that gives them a better view of where the project is. And through the compliance process, um, which brings in the supply chain organisation, you have a much better view of where where the project really is in time. So it's hard to see where there, is, there isn't a benefit really in terms of using this approach. But other sectors have really applied this, this approach much more effectively. So sectors like aviation and defence. What can the civil engineering industry learn from those sectors? So in terms of um, learning from other uh, areas like uh, avionics and defence, our experience has been that you need to extend those capabilities to specifically cater for infrastructure. And we're not just talking here about technology or technological solutions. One of the biggest challenges is, is the organisational aspects of making systems engineering work in on large infrastructure projects, where you often have very dispersed organisations. I mean, we've worked on projects, for example, in the Middle East, where the design teams are working right across the world. Um, so, so there are huge, actually, organisational challenges in terms of how you do this effectively. And then there are contractual issues when you've got a major project, something like Crossrail, for example, where you may have more than 100 different contracts that you are trying to manage in terms of delivering a solution, that can provide significant challenges in terms of getting an overview of where things are. So what we found is, and, and we have worked on, on the uh, methodology of uh, progressive assurance over time and developed the concepts of progressive assurance, which is really an extension of uh, systems engineering practice that has been evolved to um, work in infrastructure. Um, and that really is looking at, um, obviously, the core issues of um, the, the, the main systems engineering processes, but how you actually enable an organisation to embrace systems engineering. Because often the issues aren't just about the cost of the technology, they're about the organisational transformation that needs to take place on a project to take best advantage of a systems engineering approach. I don't know if you agree with that, Matt. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think um, org- organisation is, is one of the, the the key things for me in this, and the and not not underestimating the impact of the overlay of an organisation on on the project that you're delivering and, and the the need for that to to work for the greater good of the system. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's no good if each organisation has delivered their scope, but, you've, but it doesn't all come together as a, as an overall as an overall solution at the end. I think so just to turn, for add add to what you're saying there, um, Chris. The the, the th- other thing for me that I I sort of take from from defence aviation and and particularly I think if you look at the emergence of, of system engineering and rail over the last 15 20 years or so um is is for me I use the term leadership and I use that in two ways really one from a sort of project leadership point of view about asking questions of the system its maturity what risk we've got associated with it when you're making key decisions about moving forwards in the program you know are we ready to go and start 
um, building this? Are we ready to go into detailed design? If, if I said, for instance, as, as an example, we, we want to go into detailed design and construction, but we can't demonstrate and we don't know whether the true needs of our end user has been met. Uh, there's risk associated with that. Now, you might be able to, uh, and you might be happy to move forward with that risk. But if you don't ask that question, or you're not able to answer that question, you are blind to that risk. And I think that's that's really what, what we're what we're talking about here. And I think what you can see in defence and aviation and what is starting to come to the fore in, in rail is project delivery frameworks and ways of delivering projects that one, support and encourage those questions to be asked at key milestones. And, and two, uh, have sets of deliverables and activities within a, within a standard project environment that generate the information and the data that enable you to answer those questions. Yeah, I guess a client always wants you to get onto site quicker and to get the project moving quicker and actually be able to see some shovels in the ground. That's always a challenge. So, <laughs> so what does the new institution of civil engineers report on the approach mean for the industry? Is it opening up the concept to a wider audience and can people read the report and apply the learning straight away now? For me, there's a couple of things I really take from the um from the report. And, and I think first is really just the significance of where the report has come from, you know, from the IC as a body. Um, that, that has a significant amount of meaning coming from, from, from the ICE and their position of, of leadership within the industry. I think it does, it in some way, allow people to start entering and, and using the systems engineering uh, world if they and concepts, perhaps if they aren't familiar with them. Uh, insofar as the framework that it puts forward just sets out some very high level principles that people can use to structure some of their thinking around whilst they're planning or developing a programme or reviewing uh, a programme they might be working on. It's obviously not a, a, a set of instructions for how to do it, and it wouldn't be right for it to be a set of instructions. Um, because in the same way as you know all other engineering, it, it, it Approaches need to be tailored for specific applications, specific projects, um, and, and, and depending on what you're doing. I, I think it does in part, it's obviously not a simple question to answer, um, but it, it, to me, what it, it makes a really interesting point about closing the gap. And that's something we do need to do. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with quite how it's, it's, it's phrased, because I think, I think there's perhaps something missing is, yes, we need to learn from other industries and look at how other industries are doing it. And as Chris has, has said, it, it's not a direct transfer and we need to, we need to find and, and work out what works for the industry. Um, but we also, you know, projects last tens of years. So the iteration that we need to go through to mature this isn't going to be quick. And what we need to be doing is sharing best practice as we deliver projects as well between projects. Um, to really, really accelerate that. Well, that, that's partly one of the reasons, Matt, why we invited you onto this podcast, because you're using a systems approach at the moment on the Wales and Border project. Can you perhaps outline what the issues might have been on that programme if you had taken a more traditional approach rather than systems engineering approach? So, Claire, if I, if I start off perhaps just very briefly explaining what Wales and Borders is and, and, how we're, and then I'll come on to how we're applying systems engineering in it. Wales and Borders is a, a programme to operate, maintain, and develop the uh, the railways in in Wales, and a large part of that is to transform what's called the Core Valley lines in the south of Wales uh, into a, a railway that's faster, 
got a higher frequency of service, uh, it's more accessible, better for the environment. Within that project and programme, there's a role that is called the Operating Development Partner, or the ODP, and that's what uh, Kioli Sabi have taken on, and that role is to run not only the train services and the trains, but to, uh, to manage the operation, maintenance and development of all of the railway infrastructure as well. Uh, and that's a fairly unique situation, combining what is normally split between network rail and train operators. And, and because of we've got that unique uh, opportunity or relatively unique opportunity, what it's enabled us to do is to make some trade-offs in the, the system and our solution that we're delivering. Um, and if I give you an example of that, a good example is the, the relationship and the way we've managed the selection of new trains to minimise infrastructure costs, which actually enables us to maximise the overall value. We, can, we have a fixed budget, so we can spend that money on something else. So we have an environmental objective that we can really only achieve by not using diesel as our fuel source on the trains. Um, and for this and other reasons, we are electrifying the railway. So in, in sort of simple talk, we, we, we need to put up overhead, overhead wires to power the trains. Now, the railway in the south of Wales is a pretty old railway. When it was first built, the idea of putting up overhead lines wasn't really considered. Uh, and as a result, one of the challenges that we need to overcome is getting electrical clearances between our structures that go in and around and over the line uh, and the overhead wires. Those civil uh, interventions that we might need to do as part of that are one of the major cost implications of, of electrifying a railway. So what we did was we, we looked at the system as a whole and what we realised is if we had the ability for the trains that were electrified to run short distances without an external power supply, uh, it would allow us to reduce the number of interventions quite significantly. Uh, and so we made that decision to the trains we are procuring have what we call an onboard energy system, effectively a battery. And that allows them to navigate short, short sections of the railway without a power supply from the overlay. Now, obviously, we made that decision and that frees us up to spend some money that we might have spent on uh, raising bridges, for instance, or on other things. But what we need to do is we can't just file that, put it on a shelf and get on. We need to be careful with how we manage that interface because it's, we've now created a fairly major and complex dependency within our overall railway system that we have to manage. And if we don't manage it, we, we could end up with a solution that doesn't work because we're, because we're dependent on it. So some of the challenges that we've got to manage around that are around the capacity of our batteries. So we have a fixed capacity of the battery, and obviously we'd like to reduce the major civil interventions as much as possible. However, there's a limit to what we can do that with, uh, do there particularly if we have a specific timetable that we want to operate. So this brings in the question of how are we going to use the railway? Because how we use it affects, is going to affect this because it will affect how long trains spend waiting in stations or what happens, for instance, if a train was held at a red signal uh, and it didn't have a power supply at that point. So we have to, we have to bring all of that in and it's, it's a pretty complex thing to manage. And then on top of that, just to add a bit more complexity, we need to think long term. We need to look at the life of our, our system um, in service because you know, how we use that battery, for instance, is going to affect the life of that battery. And replacing those batteries is, is a significant event, both in terms of time, uh, but particularly in terms of operational expenditure. So we have another 
uh, trade-off to balance and optimize there, which is sure you can see that getting that wrong actually could have a major impact on the, on the overall really successful outcome of the project. So whilst there's benefits we can derive from that, there's actually quite a lot of risk that we're still carrying there and needs managing long-term. But we couldn't have capitalized on that opportunity if we didn't take a systems-based approach. And we didn't recognize that from the beginning because in recognizing from that in the beginning, we've been able to set up our project structure and our organization our program and our processes and procedures to support the management of that so we can control it. So the, the reason why we did that is because we recognised the complexity of the challenge we had and the opportunity that was available to get the best bang for our buck, fundamentally, from the public's budget for, for the railway. It sounds like it would have been almost impossible to deliver using a traditional approach. Uh, we, well, we very much could have done it. Uh, it's just it becomes a lot more expensive if you if you want to have a continuously electrified railway, um, effectively raising those bridges and, and the civil interventions uh, would be very expensive. So, Chris, you've used a systems approach on a number of international projects. Can you outline some of the benefits that's been delivered on those? Yeah, it's 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 that's an interesting question, Claire. Uh, we've. Um, engage projects around the world and, and particularly in, in areas like the Middle East and uh, Southeast Asia as well as uh, Europe in the main. What we found in, for example, the Southeast Asia is that systems engineering is, is, is quite immature, but that's delivered opportunities to provide a systems approach from the ground up, really. So and many of the projects that we worked on have been greenfield projects, really. So some of the first railway systems that have gone into countries in the Middle East, for example, and, and uh, working in, in places in Southeast Asia, like Malaysia and the Philippines. And the progressive assurance approach that we've used very much works on the basis of engaging the client owner organisation and establishing the principles for a systems approach. And a key aspect of systems engineering, which we've not really um, outlined uh, much in this conversation is, is the the byproduct, if you like, of systems engineering approach, which is the assurance aspects of a railway. And and with the assurance process, what we what we're really doing is we are gathering a body of evidence that will ultimately be used when the project is handed over to the operator maintainer, that demonstrates that the project is safe, that it's fit for purpose, and that it meets the the client requirements, and and it and it meets the outcomes that were were established at the beginning of the project uh, and the benefits of that system. And so, so these are things that a system approach should really be focusing on. So as we said earlier, rather than just, you know, getting the, the tunnels dug and what have you, what we're really looking to do is ultimately uh, attain the benefits that were originally established for that railway system. And some of the key aspects of what we're doing on those um, projects, and if I think, for example, of the Doha Metro, as an example. In terms of establishing the assurance processes, those processes have been mandated across the supply chain. So some 30-odd suppliers uh, into that program are all using a common set of processes. So with a sort of common definition of what requirements are, etc., in the context of that project. And one of the things that that achieves for the client owner organization is sort of unprecedented overview 
of where the overall compliance is against that uh, assurance uh, process. And, and, you know, what it also does for the supply chain is that it provides a, a really efficient way of engaging the project. I think one of the things that we often find is uh, even, you know, in, in the UK and the States, for example, where systems engineering is, is well embedded, well understood, is that often the interface between the core project and the supply chain is fairly tenuous. So often relying on sort of spreadsheet-based interfaces, etc. And and that sort of brings into play the issues of procurement and supply chain management. But with a progressive assurance approach, what we do is we link up the supply chain with the core project itself so that we have this overview of where where the assurance process is at any given time. Because often what happens with assurance is that it, it's a bit like a bow wave ahead of a ship. As the project progresses, all of this uh, assurance activity, and I see Matt sort of smiling there, builds up in front of the project. And you have a lot of activity towards the end of the project to, to put together the assurance cases, etc. Now, a number of things come out of that. If you're not aligning your assurance case with the and synchronizing it with the active project itself, you're not realizing the benefits of the availability of information at almost you know real time. And that means that you see things a lot earlier. You receive information which enables you to make better engineering decisions and optioneering. And ultimately, it, it means that you complete your uh, safety cases and your technical cases ahead of uh, delivery of the project uh, into operation and maintenance. So there are many efficiencies that come out of that process uh, overall. So you've focused a lot on the positive side of things there. What are the common pitfalls and mistakes that you've seen with the systems approach that perhaps you could share that the wider industry can learn from? Well, I'll I'll start off if you like. I, I think we've learned a lot. Let's put it that way. You know, over over the years, we've learned from a lot of mistakes, frankly. Um, and the, the, the process of progressive assurance has, has evolved over time uh, through the lessons learned often. If I think of some of the, the key issues, uh, I hark back on to, to, to the requirements aspect again. I think over the last four years or so, since we've been part of the Bentley organisation, I've engaged many uh, infrastructure projects but but one commonality is often that there isn't a, a sort of a, pro, a standard approach for requirements management on projects generally it is often the domain of the systems engineering aspects of the project uh, but often requirements are not well defined um, and they're not well managed through the through the engineering life cycle another one that we find a lot in 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 the middle east and, and southeast asia is that often they want to leave the civils out of the equation. They just really want to focus on the systems aspect. So applying systems engineering just to the the systems aspect of a project. And we spend a lot of time working with client owner organizations to convince them that actually civils are just as important as any other aspect of a project and should be considered holistically, you know, within the systems engineering context. If you get your civils engineering wrong, it will impact your systems. Um, and I think we often see that. I think the other area really is is also um, 
one of the things that we try to do is to work with organizations to to make the use of systems engineering uh, much wider within an organization. Systems engineering and assurance is pretty complex stuff. And it relies often on experts to manage, you know, the, the those complex areas and, and, and disciplines. Um, areas like hazard management, for example, risk management, interface management, uh, etc. What what we're looking to do generally uh, with 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 a progressive assurance approach is is to democratize systems engineering and to get more engineering disciplines involved in the overall process itself. And to that extent, what we're not trying to do is to be too uh, prescriptive in terms of an approach. And I think I picked out from um, one of the case studies, uh, which I think was Shell, where they had uh, determined that over time, they had become too prescriptive with their assurance processes, etc. And it was stifling innovation. What we don't want to do is to stifle innovation. But on the other hand, what we want to do is to, to break down a lot of the sort of silos of expertise that often exist on projects and get more people involved. So, for example, I think Crossrail was the first project to employ a progressive assurance approach in the design phase of the project. And you had 28 design framework consultancies working together around a common set of processes where the the design engineers are actually managing their own assurance regime. And that has to be a highly uh, effective and efficient way of progressing. So I think lots of lessons learned in that way, but I think you have to involve the civils in the overall picture of, of, of what you're trying to achieve. You have to engage the supply chain as much as possible, because although there's a view, often it's viewed that large contracting organisations have the expertise, the maturity to be able to manage their own assurance. When you actually talk to those organisations, it is problematical because they often in a in a stage gate review will receive a lot of information from the client just before the review often in spreadsheet form that they then have to federate across their organization um, to get input from their the various disciplines that that, that that are involved in the process that all has to be collated and then that all, all has to then go back to the client organization to be fed back into their core assurance systems. It's a very inefficient process. So what about you, Matt? Have you seen some common pitfalls and problems? Uh, yes. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, I agree with a lot of the points Chris was making there. Um, I think that the thing for me, and particularly having you know, worked in defence and, and worked in, in rail and worked in other other infrastructure uh, projects as well, is, is about trying to, one, not lose not lose sight or before you even set off, actually, make sure you understand what it is you want to achieve from your systems engineering or systems thinking, or systems-based approach. You, you can't just have half a pound of systems engineering. Well, you, you can, but it's not magic. You, you need to understand what you want to achieve and, and how that fits in. You need to acknowledge the size of the step that you're potentially trying to make as an organisation, as a, as a project entity, in, in doing that, you know, if 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 a BIM's an interesting example, if 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 somebody said, "Oh, we're at BIM level one at the minute," but the next project we're going we're going to do BIM level three, 
a lot of people will probably just go, that's a brave, that's a big step. What about, you know, what about level two? How are you going to get from one to three in one big leap? And it's the same for this. We're, talk, we're talking about doing something new, doing something different. It's, it's not wrong to take big, bold steps in doing that, but we need to recognise that we're taking big, bold steps. And the project and its leadership needs to support and empower that, if that's the case. It's no use saying from the outset, we're going to do that, and then going back to managing projects how we normally manage them. Because as a result, you, you won't get what you need from the systems engineering, and it will turn into a, a heat generating activity instead of a value generating activity. So I think that they're, they're the key things for me is, is to understand really what you want to achieve, why you're doing it, recognising that you are making a change, and then supporting and empowering that change. So the examples you've both given so far have been from the rail infrastructure sector. How does the systems engineering approach differ when you apply it to a road scheme or a high-rise building? Is there a different way of working with it? So fundamentally, I I would say no. Um, If you you abstract systems engineering and the concept of systems engineering, the principles don't change. What does change is the system we're applying it to. And therefore, we need to consider what are the characteristics of that system and and what examples of how systems engineering has been successfully deployed previously can we use to determine a a good approach and a good good way of tackling this. And I think Chris Chris mentioned earlier, one of the key differences between perhaps a defence or aerospace environment, which is very product focused, to um to the infrastructures is is that we aren't developing products and we aren't we aren't at that level of detail in a lot of cases and that the challenges and where the risk sits in a project is different and so between rail and and road and high rise i'd say there's less of a difference but there is a significant difference between say a road scheme and a um an aerospace project for instance so they are different and they need different tools, techniques and approaches, but it, it's not it's not very it's not simple as just to say we need to do it there's one way for one and one way for the other. We need to tailor our approach based on what it is we're actually doing. There, there are a lot of cultural aspects to this in terms of how systems engineering can be applied. Because essentially, you know, the the, the core principles of systems engineering remain the same for any of these projects, I think as Matt as Matt said. Often the issues are ones of perceived affordability, usability and capability for organisations. And, you know, I think our experience would say that often, I think there is a there is a shift happening in the industry in that often systems engineering approach is measured in, in, in context of the project that it's going to be applied to. So often it's said, um, you know, a project that's um, of a value of less than 50 million you know, you shouldn't employ um, a comprehensive solution, etc. Uh, I think what's happening is that organisations, the you know, the engineering, procurement, and consulting organisations, EPC organisations, the multidisciplinary consulting organisations themselves are taking on board that they need to take on a systems engineering expertise and knowledge that they can apply to their projects. So that it becomes more of a standard approach generally, rather than just looking at specific projects, it becomes possible then to get the economy of scale to apply it to all projects. And we're working with organisations at the moment like Jacobs and Acom, 
who are looking to standardize their approaches to systems engineering to put in place a framework to be able to deliver a standard sort of best practice approach that that is scalable to any size of project. So that was going to be my next question really was, is there a cutoff with regards to the size of project that we can apply the systems approach to? Do you think that's the case at the moment or do you think that that will change? No, is my is my short answer. Um, I, I, I think, as I said, the, the concepts and the principles apply at every level from, from making a cup of tea all the way up, you know, the, the point is how do you do it and, and the level of formality and detail you need in your approach and the tools and the, and the you know, the tools you might need to do it. You, you do not need a Ferrari, for instance, if you need to move a load of building materials around, you need a van. It has different functionality and different performance. And I think understanding the tools that you need uh, to support the processes that you want to follow is is the important thing when when you're looking at the scale of scale of a project. And, and it comes back to organisation again, I think. You know, talking to projects in the past, often the focus has been on technology in isolation from organisational issues. And as I said earlier, you know, often the major cost for a large project is, is the organisational transformation that you need to take best advantage of a systems approach. So the use of the word systems instantly makes a lot of people think of technology. Is there a shift in culture and behaviour on projects needed in order to apply a systems approach as well? So yes, there will be some behaviours and challenges to, uh, to doing this, but we're not, we're not talking about changing what people are going the majority of people are going to be doing on a day-to-day basis you know people you know, designers are not and, and and people on site for instance aren't suddenly going to be doing drastically different things what we're talking about doing is is looking at the data and the information that we need and manage and produce throughout our projects and how we use it and how we structure it so that we understand what we're doing and we can track the overall progress and maturity of a, of a system and a project through its delivery so it's not necessary that civil engineers need to consider adding new skills in order to deliver a systems engineering approach. It's more a case of adapting their existing knowledge and applying it in perhaps a slightly different way. If we contrast defence with civil engineering, you know, no defence project goes ahead without a full assessment at the systems level of that of the business case right from the very earliest concepts, from the, the most senior management down down the organisation, there is a a thorough understanding of systems thinking, a systems approach, and, you know, everything is done within the context of a system. That doesn't happen in civil engineering yet. So I think there is an educational process that needs to take take place, a a cross-fertilisation of knowledge, experience, and we've seen a lot of that in the rail industry in the UK. Senior management in Network Rail have have brought in a lot of people from the defence industry to to bring systems knowledge and experience into the industry. I think the great thing about this report is it is a realisation that things need to change in civil engineering. I think that's a fantastic, you know, um, report. And and I, you know, What's coming out of that is a phase two, where I think the um, the industry you know needs to look further at how it moves forward, etc. Andrew McNaughton, Norton's done a fantastic job in putting this report together. I think for me, one of the big 
issues that that needs to be considered is where are we already applying this in the industry within civils and within major civil engineering projects and how can we improve on that going forwards because it's not as if it doesn't exist it does exist and a lot of lessons can be learned from how it's being done at the moment how it can improve going forwards so how can civil engineers start to apply this concept does it need to start right from the procurement stage and do we need a different approach to procurement in order to apply it effectively? Well, I, I've got a view on that. And um, when you're involved with projects that have, you know, huge supply chain organisations and the general view, certainly in the UK, is that we'll devolve the responsibility for uh, areas like assurance to the supply chain. It's an expedient way to handle things from a contractual perspective. But actually, as we've described earlier, one of the effects of that is that the client owner loses control effectively of the overall assurance perspective on the project. Um, if you can harness the supply chain and, and you can get better line of sight from the supply chain up through the organisation, um, you get a much better overview of, of where things are. And, and from my perspective, I think that often things are driven from the procurement process itself. And, you know, the management of contracts and the contractual boundaries that exist on major projects is highly problematical. And there are methods and ways of improving that today. And I think the, the industry can look at that. And it, it's probably a bit like trying to turn an oil tanker. I, re I recognise that. But I'm sure, you know, if you imagine that a huge amount of work goes into developing a project specification, a program specification. And often the contracts are directly derived from those specifications. So we take them out, we put them into separate silos, and then we try to manage them individually. Why not keep them together? Why not manage the, the, the contractual environment um, within, within the context of the program specification? Use things like electronic tendering um, to vastly improve the process of tendering and make it far more efficient and to be able to refine specifications through that process and then when you've been through the and you've let the ten when you've let the contracts you then have the start point for each of those organizations in terms of the the work package specifications etc all ready to go that are already joined up with the the rest of the system so i think there's a lot of room for improvement in uh, procurement processes, uh, systems and approach on major projects. Is that your experience too, Matt? Yeah, I, th I, I, I very much um, yeah, support what, what, Chris has, uh, what Chris has said there. I think if, if I just sort of touch on perhaps more to, as an individual engineer's, um, what an individual engineer might be able to do to start using the concept. To, I, th I think, you know, as, as we said previously, there isn't, there isn't a need for for everyone to drop everything and suddenly go and reskill in this, but I, I think there is an opportunity for people to start creating the need within a project as well for systems engineering by starting to just just think about how they consider things and and asking questions in perhaps a slightly different way. So perhaps you know asking for the requirements if they if they're not clear. So when they're when they're doing something, saying what are my requirements or can I actually comply to the requirements before I start. Uh, or how is this going to be used or maintained? 
or, or what are my interfaces? And in some cases, you know, that, that is happening already and we, we shouldn't ignore that. But the more that happens and the more that that need is a sort of groundswell of, of need goes up into a project as well, the more a project will have... Um, will be able to 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 uh, adopt systems engineering because the, the the question is there to be answered at that point so how long do you think it will be before a systems approach becomes standardized and people see it as the norm rather than it being something that we need to report on to tell us how to do it well i think the report says that it feels the industry is something like five years behind it might be more um it's not going to happen overnight but i think there are a lot of elements that can be leveraged that, that for example as we've said you know the, the approach that's already being used on on major projects um, learning from those there are aspects of systems engineering that are more readily uh, adaptable the the core aspects of requirements management can be relatively straightforwardly embraced i think on more widely within the civil engineering context um but it, it will take time. I think it will take time. But the good thing is that the industry's um, it's realised that it needs to change. I think that's the, the core thing for me, and that it will take time. But um, you know, because of the complexities of projects now and the the environmental issues uh, that exist that that um, impact uh, major civil engineering projects, etc., they are hugely complex. Hugely complex. And it's only really with a sort of systems approach that you will get that complexity under control. What about you, Matt? What's your prediction for when it becomes the norm? Uh, I'm not, well, I, th- I think it's, it's a very difficult one to predict um, f- fundamentally because it depends on the, the willingness of, of industry to, to do this. Um, it, it won't happen if people don't want it to happen. So I think it, it, needs, it needs leadership and drive to, to make it happen. And I think, as I, as I mentioned before, I think one of the challenges around developing this and maturing this in the industry will be the iteration cycle we can achieve with projects. And I think that the vital thing to that is is sharing lessons both from other industries, but particularly uh, between projects as we're delivering. And then also sharing the success stories about when things do go well. If we can start to communicate the benefits that we're achieving with this, it will encourage people to want to do it. And I think that you have to have people need to want to do it to make this happen. I just wanted to mention one thing which comes to mind and um, it's around the standardization of approach for the industry. I think one thing that will help is is if uh, the industry can look towards standardizing an approach for systems engineering, maybe along the lines of, of, of the REBA processes or, or whatever. But I think there is an opportunity to scale things on the basis of a standardized approach, pretty much the same as um, happened with BIM, the BIM initiative overall, um, and the standards around BIM. You know, and I think that could help significantly in assisting organizations, small and large, in terms of applying a systems engineering approach. What further developments do you think we could see in terms of systems approaches as it becomes the norm? And what further benefits could that bring for the construction industry? Well, I think we've mentioned a number of them during this uh, podcast. And um, for me, one of the key things that needs to happen in the industry is the bringing together of a systems engineering approach with uh, the digital engineering world, with the world of BIM and the digital 
um, uh, twin. At the moment, they are separate, and that is an issue for the industry. Uh, it's, an, it's an issue for most industries, in fact. You know, the, the architectural community and the civil engineering community have embraced building information modelling uh, and the digital twin, and that's fantastic, and it, and it delivers huge value to the industry. Unfortunately, it doesn't tie in particularly well to the systems engineering approach on projects because one thing is for sure, on pretty much all safety-critical infrastructure projects, there is a systems engineering element that is um, often applied in a, in, in, on a siloed basis and looking at specific issues um, like hazard management, for example, or safety management. They need to become a lot closer together. In fact, really, the systems approach should drive the dig digital engineering process itself. I think that would be one of the major advances in the industry uh, in, in years to come. Well, it's certainly a fascinating topic. Thank you both for joining me today. I think it's really clear that civil engineers who are starting to apply the systems approach are already seeing the benefits. And the new report from the Institution of Civil Engineers really does lift the lid on what the wider industry could gain from application of the concept. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.